It's Friday 3rd of June and we're back for our next podcast. Um, we've got some interesting uh, Q&As lined up um, to go through. Um, but how, how are you? How has your past month been, Al? Um, it's been pretty varied. Um, I've seen more and more of um, people having sort of problems with their you know, current site or their current, um, their current developer or web designer, as it were. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe unable to do something or, or AWOL. You know, or the classic yeah, AWOL often. Don't gone snowboarding, which is <laughs> classic. Um, I know we don't get the opportunity to do that. <laughs> no, I, I did it once. Terrible. terrible. <laughs> Would never do it again. So yeah, often you know, with site working on sites, it's not always a site redesign that you need to do. Sometimes it's going in and just fixing some a few things that uh, you know are wrong or that just need updating. Uh, and you know, people quite rightly don't know how how to do it because mm. someone else has built it um, and they're no longer around. So. You know, web design isn't always about new sites and new things. It's often just about maintaining what you have. You know, it's not it's not worth doing a whole new site just to do a little bit. You know, no, little not bit for the thing. small changes. And yeah. actually, a recent site you've been working on is a bit of a mashup between two, uh, not two different ways of making. Well, they are two different ways of making a website. It was part sort of hand coded PHP uh, and yeah. then part WordPress as well, which was quite interesting. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I always find those sites a bit a bit odd. Um, because you just think, why didn't you just use WordPress for all of it? And then yeah. you'd have a whole content management system built in, everything would be in one place, that the your main site and your blog wouldn't kind of be these different entities and everything would look the same. So, um, yeah, it's always a bit curious why people do that. I think in the old days, WordPress was just a blogging thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it might just be, you know, a, hang, a hangover from that in a sense. Uh, and it just, you know, then flourished into more of a whole CMS for, that can really handle a multitude of different site um, you know, styles. Well, yeah, um, I think it had more limitations uh, back in the day. And um, we, we probably only started using WordPress four years ago. Yeah, that sounds maybe about right. Slightly longer than that, maybe five years ago. So actually, we we're probably quite new to WordPress, um, um, relatively. Um, I, I think, though, a lot of sites develop um, over time. And maybe this site was initially developed and it was quite straightforward, quite simple. So mm. someone might choose to do it as separate pages. And then, yeah. then client wants a blog. They want to be able to update it themselves. And like, <laughs> oh, wow. So that's a quite a big change. But actually, if yeah. it's just adding a blog on with posts and pages, then a lot of people, I have seen it where they have this part WordPress sort of tacked on the end. And, and it's, it's fine from an out, outward perspective. It can work and it's fine. But it's just from, a, um, from our point of view, we get to see the guts and, uh, and the insides of it. And actually, from the client point of view, it, it can be a bit messy. But I guess needs must, you know. That's right. You know, at the end of the day, as long as you know, the end user gets what they need uh, out of the site and it's, you know, it's not causing too many headaches, headaches, it's okay to sort of keep it, keep it like that. Um, and any cool things you've been working on? Oh, they put me on the spot there. I'm always working on slightly cool things. Everything's cool. <laughs> Anything we can share. Never, you know, nothing too avant-garde or really cutting edge. Um, we're doing a lot more um, CSS, really. I've been getting more into uh, really using CSS a bit better and a bit more intelligently mm-hmm. um, and really sort of focusing on that and trying to basically keep HTML to an absolute minimum but and just let the CSS do all, all of the work, really. Uh, and, um, yeah, so just improving my uh, knowledge of um, responsive and fluid sites and, yeah, keeping things... Uh, as tidy as can be. That's that reminds me actually. Um, I went to port eighty. What was it not last week? The week before, um, and it's a. To be honest, it's a bit more technical than our audience generally. 
Um, but I like to go along because it's interesting, although to be honest, a lot of it's over my head. You know, they sort of dive into Java, JavaScript frameworks and stuff like that, which is uh, beyond me generally. I normally go with you, but it's your birthday, so you decided to spend that with your friends. Uh, well, yeah, it was my 40th, and I, I just... I, I, yeah, I apologise. I just didn't want to spend it in Newport. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Joel, who ran the conference, uh, is, is not happy about that. But I went with Jack McCautry, uh, who's one of our um, coaches, who uh, hopefully will, will get onto the podcast at some point. It was very interesting. In fact, in fact um, you mentioned responsive layouts and design there. Um, is it Andy Clark? Let me try and find his name on the roster here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that means Andy Clark. Yeah, we've seen him actually a few times. And... He was talking about um, basically people, it, it was a comment on people designing the same websites. So basically, if you look around a lot of modern websites, they all look the same. And so his uh, talk was an anecdote to that, um, oh, sorry, an antidote to that, um, and sort of giving some suggestions on how we can take um, ideas from magazines. Because magazines have been doing this for a long time, and, and while... Um, they're not doing so well from a money point of view and people are moving online. I think mm. online can, it tends to look the same. Um, a bit boring sometimes. And I think that there are justifications as to why that might be. I mean, there are conventions that people are used to, where menus go, where sidebars go. But there's yeah. still, we can still have some play within that, I think. And that's what his talk was about, which was quite interesting. Yeah. I wasn't at the talk, obviously, but just as my thinking, certainly on a desktop size or on a larger screen, and yes, you've got a bit more space to play with. On a mobile, you know, you've got very little, literally, no pun intended, very little margin, <laughs> you know, for, for, for doing many things. You know, it's you know, it's block of text, full width image, block of text, you know. Yes, you can still bring in some design elements that are on the desktop, but, you know, you can't, you just, there's no white space, really. You want to be able harder. to space, yeah, got to be Depends what it is you're selling. Well, it's, it's, it's I, I think that's why people have. That's why people have um, gone down the route of using these templates that are very similar because um, it is hard to do responsive design, as you know, and think about not only what does it look like on a large de- desktop device, but maybe maybe regular laptop monitors, tablets, and a mobile device, and the various different types. It's hard mm-hmm. to think about how that works, and actually, just using a template is quite nice. Think, well, it's done for me, but actually, someone's then, had to think of it. <laughs> yeah, someone else thinking it, but it's, it tends to get a bit dull. So, um, yeah. and I think you're you're always trying to not make websites look the same as the last one. We don't want to be thought of as a no. company that develops websites that just use the same old template. Absolutely. Do you remember a couple of years back there was we had a client and um, obviously no names. Um, <laughs> Is and... it good or bad story? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. We'll find out. Um, so yeah, we had they gave us the designs, which is mm-hmm. great. But the um, desktop uh, version, but nothing for the smaller size screens. And of course, I just need to think, well, what do we do there? Mm-hmm. And I think the response was just use the default mobile layout. There is an idea, broadly speaking, that stuff on the right slides under stuff on the left. But that doesn't always work because sometimes you have, think about you have like a, you might have. Um, uh, let's say a quote, this is on the left, so maybe visually it's on the left on a desktop. It's on the left and then you've got the copy on the right. And that can look quite nice. But then if you shrink that down using the logic of everything on the right, shoves under the stuff on the left, that quote get, goes to the top. And if you haven't read the title and um, maybe a, a little bit into the body of the, the, the text, that quote doesn't necessarily make sense. 
Mm. Um, there's little things like that. You've got to think about how the actual priority and order of things, and it can be. That's that's it. Priority, that's yes. It. And of course, as a designer or developer, you have to kind of know what that is before you make the site, because you can do some things with them. Um, you know, the left and right columns, although they might look left and right on a desktop, actually, in reality, they're the other way around. Mm -hmm. And just float it to the right and float the other one to the left, but in the wrong order. Yes. So when it goes to the phone, then it's it's in the right order. You don't have to do any kind of moving around of those elements. It just so, flows into the right order. So what you're saying is that really you, you need to think about up front where you want these components on which different devices. Then you can build the sort of the codey bits, the HTML in the right way. Yes. So it float, puts it together. Right. Okay. Yeah. It makes life a lot easier to know that up front. I mean, there yeah. is this kind of mobile first kind of uh, you know theory. I, I I kind of I don't really do mobile first. I kind of uh, do it all to, all together a little mm. bit. I do up first, and but then the very next thing I think of is how's it going to work on a on a mobile. <laughs> when I say mobile. Na a narrow screen. Yeah, narrow, narrow screens. Narrow it down to a That's, You can't call it mobile on that. It's, narrow, it's narrow, well, like, or like wide a narrower screen. screen. <laughs> yes. How's it going to work on a narrower screen? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so yeah, it's it's. Yeah, but you important. flip between the two. I mean, what you you're basically um, you'll be throwing ideas down, or which could be in desktop. But I think you're flip you're flipping between and constantly thinking, well, how's this going to work? How's this going to work? So even though you might be designing a desktop version, or let's say um, a wider version. I think mm. you're still conscious of how that will appear. Oh, absolutely. It's completely part of mm. that process. Yeah, yeah. The, the other consideration is to think about how, what it looks like when, it, when you've got a massive screen, which a lot of people do. I totally agree. And um, it's something I yeah, thought a couple of years back. It was, um, I uh, put a tweet out about it, which something no one saw. But um, it just sort of said, with responsive and fluid design, people are just so conscious of going down to a tiny, you know, for a tiny screen. What about these big screens? We don't want just massive margins down the side. That's just like, you know, <laughs> years and years ago, you used to have this narrow sort of t table in the middle with big margins down the side. So, yeah, how does it respond when it's really wide? Mm. What can you do there? It might just be having um, more background visible or something that comes in that isn't critical for the site to work, but it's just like an added extra on a wider screen. You might just get some sort of design or, or elements or something in the background. Or, or some could fill it completely. Let's say there's some sites we've seen or designs where they're, they're perhaps led by the blog, and so they've got blocks of blog articles up, up front on the homepage. There's no reason you can't expand those blocks and, and keep adding more columns as you've got more, more width to play with. But linking on with that... Um, because what I mean, what you what you're saying is quite relevant, and actually, you need to you need to make sure that the client or our client in that case is on board with that idea, that they're happy with that idea, they understand that really there's going to be a lot of fluidity between the whole design, and it's not going to look exactly like this on a mobile or exactly like this on a tablet. Actually, um, certainly the way you design, it's is it fluid or responsive? What's the term? I do both, so uh, it's, it's fluid it, and responsive. So this is basically where you can you can start on a mobile screen. So if you've got your browser and shrunk it right down, you start mm. on a screen that size, and as you pull it out and get it wider and wider and bigger and bigger and bigger, this, the, the design will change on the fly. It won't skip between different sizes. It'll actually adapt and change depending on what is possible to fit on the screen at that time. Maybe that's called responsive. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, don't... I can't think of the other way. I know that's how you do it's... it. Maybe responsoid. That sounds a bit responsoid. But, but actually getting the client on board early helps with that because if they understand that process and they understand that really the, um, 
Well, I mean, actually, this links into something else we've been trying where we um, get clients to um, help us evolve the site over time. Maybe let's give this some context. So one of the other talks at Port 80 was from um, a woman called Helen Clark. And she was, uh, what was her talk? Designing better websites by including clients and their customers from the start. Uh, now, we haven't always done this, but um, certainly we're doing that before, before this talk and I found it quite useful to bring clients or at least representatives from the client in as early as possible and get them to understand what we're trying to achieve. But one of those things, linking in with design, um, that we've started doing more recently is to get customers to understand that we're not going to present a design and then make that design into a website. Actually, what we do is we'll present them with ideas for that design. And some might be quite polished, some might be just sketches and wireframes. But what we'll do is we'll put that into the site and then evolve them over time as we start adding in their um, content. Sometimes we've got a lot of content to begin with, sometimes it's very sketchy. And so basically we're evolving the site to move around content to make sure it fits with, with what they've got in there. Is that right? So that, that's pretty much how, how we do it now. Um, yeah. And I, I've, from my side, I, I've, it feels more natural to do it that way because not all clients have everything ready to begin with. They don't have their, client writ, um, their content written up for us to use. They don't have all the photos ready. They don't have the videos ready. And um, without all of that, it's very difficult to put um, a design in place because to mm. me, a design is a way of helping convey and communicate information. Generally, we don't design things just for design's sake, there's a reason. Um, and most clients, because they haven't got that, all that stuff to begin with, actually the only way we can do it is by guessing, making a guess in a particular direction, putting, mm. putting those into an actual website and then moving it forward. Mm. But I found her, her talk interesting, um, just to reiterate that actually that is a good idea, that really, you know, a lot of agencies, uh, f certainly from my experience, don't do that. They, they pitch a design and then present, then do the design and make it. And then trying to shoehorn the content into it in some way. Yeah. And then they'll change things later. You know, they'll come across problems and change them later. But by that point, you've got a lot of people saying, no, this is what the design is. It's all signed off. This is what's going to be. And actually the client may have to um, pay for amends um, or additional work to get things changed. Because, because actually, once you're halfway through a project, um, just like with uh, war, they say, you know, no plan con survives contact with the enemy. I think it's the same with this. Once you've got your plans in place, you can you can throw them away because it's actually until you put the design and the content together, yeah. it's, you don't know what it's gonna, exactly how it's going to work. It, it um, is a bit chicken and egg because if you were yeah. to say to someone, write the content for your site, they're like, well, <coughs> what does it look like? What, <laughs> yeah. what, 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 what areas do I have to write into? And so they, and in a sense, you kind of need to go through that kind of almost not a false stage, but you need to... Yeah, you need to sort of do a little bit of both because you end up with them not knowing what they could have. So you could have like a little flyout area for like the main message on the page because they might not have thought of that. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit of both, but it's certainly starting with the content is a good idea because that is classically the one thing that always delays web projects is content. I've, yeah, hardly ever, ever known projects that hasn't had some delays because of the content. Not yeah. being ready, <laughs> and it's usually it's usually because they find um, clients find it hard to write. Um, I you know, I'm not taking that. That is no, it is it difficult. Is, yeah, and we can help with that, obviously. But we have had situations where they've written too much, and it's actually <laughs> the editing that's taking the time and deciding mm -hmm. what they need to put in there. That is actually, in some ways, um, it can be harder because you know, especially if they want it all all the information in there, um, and that can compromise the design sometimes. 
Yeah, and actually it is one of the hardest things to do and I think that's that's why it gets so, um, it can delay things because it's just underestimated, like how long that's going to take. You know, I think it's not just writing a couple of Word documents, you know, pages on there, it's it's much more than that. It's really, it's a whole journey, it's, you know, it's um, uh, it's everything really. UX, you know, it's just making sure people know what they've got to do, like what do you want them to page, all these other things come into the content writing, so yeah. That is a massive, massive part of any web project. It is. I think we, we, we give a little bit more time at the beginning now where we can work with the client to um, on the content. So not writing it as such. I mean, it depends. There are projects where we can bring in a copywriter for that. But often, um, uh, well, like with our coaching, it's coaching the client to, to understand what they're writing, what they're trying to achieve, what they're trying to do. And then um, we've, uh, when do we start doing this? Probably at the, some point last year. We started using like our own wireframe in WordPress. So rather than just sort of putting it all into a, pay, a Word document or um, or just uh, putting it to designs and things like that, we've actually started putting it straight into WordPress in a, like a, in a very simple theme. And it's pretty got pretty much got nothing on there, um, but that that allows us to see how the pages are going to work, how they're going to click through, and it gives the client a sense for where this content is. Or certainly, if nothing else what needs to go on each page i think that helps as well no cool so that that was a good it was good to go um very technical <laughs> certainly for our, um i think most of the people listening probably might might find it a bit bit too technical um but very good thank you very much to joel uh, for setting that up um something else that happened i think in between when we last spoke i've had a very good dell laser printer for many many years um it's exceptional it is the uh, i can't remember exactly what type it is <laughs> The Dell 1320C or something like that. Oh, that um, is a classic. It's a classic. Oh, my <laughs> it, goodness. It was, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a laser printer um, that was reasonably priced at the time, frankly, when we got it, probably about 10 years ago. Um, and it's been a trooper. It's just been going, going, going. But recently it stopped. Happened. Something's gone wrong yeah, with it. Yeah, and I was like, what? It's just, <laughs> it's just sat in the corner working. It's been transitioned through many different properties and moved around and keeps working. Darn thing. You expect it to keep working. Has a toner um, run out? No, not the toner. <laughs> I will tell you, dive into a little bit of detail. I, I, well, I wasn't sure, and I, I've been fiddling around with it. So I, I'm, I know um, Alex at Cartridge World, uh, Alex Patterson Appleton, and at Cartridge World in Hereford. And, uh, you know, I've met her through various different networking um, events. And this, this, you know, it's been such a trooper, and actually the toner's really good. I've hardly needed to buy any um, a toner from them. But uh, yeah, I had this problem and they got me in touch with their tech guru guy, Marius, who, who very helpfully said, well, actually, it's, it's this, this main unit called the PhD or something like that, or PDH. Uh, the I don't PhD's know. gone, gone. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But basically, I didn't realise this. Um, it's got this um, special chemical that it adds to the toner to enrich it. And mm-hmm. that is stored in this PhD thing. And when it runs out, it's out and you have to buy a new one. And it's like 120 quid. Is it uranium? <laughs> it's almost, it's like almost as much as a new printer. It's, it's uh, insane. Anyway, they're very helpful in getting, in helping me choose a printer. So I just want to shout out to Marius from Cartridge World um, for doing that. Um, and I'm, I'm going to see him at some point and, and uh, they're going to recycle our old printer. I'm not sure what they can do with it, but <laughs> very nice of them. Um, so thank you to them. Thank you, Marius. You saved me. And actually what we use it for nowadays is printing a lot of just kids pictures uh, for them to draw when you go on holiday 
So um, actually sa save me uh, from that as well. Um, right, I just want to take a moment and talk about our sponsor. Now, um, the sponsor is TikTok. It's an application that we've made. And um, basically, TikTok can help any startup or sm small business promote themselves online. It's actually very similar to our coaching process. Um, and the reason it helps, if you don't know where to start, who to trust, or you're just too busy uh, running the company to make any time for marketing, as a lot of people are, then it, it might work really well. And what it does is it provides simple tasks that you can act on right away rather than adding them to your to-do list. You know, like a lot of books might give you lots of things to do. Well, this will feed them to you um, as um, over time. Uh, each task includes any examples, downloads or steps to complete it. And then a very satisfying uh, button to tick off once you've done it, which I quite like. We've, we've designed TikTok really so you can progress from almost newbie to a to a pro really as someone who understands marketing at your own speed so it's not like an audio course or maybe a, um, an email course that comes through it's something that really would uh, run at the speed and the time you have available and you develop confidence and learn more about uh, marketing as you go now you can sign up for a free 30-day trial at ticked-off.com i'll put the link in the notes for this program and you just use your name and email for that no credit card if you like it at the end of 30 days, then you can just sign up. There's a little buy button that starts appearing a couple of days before the, the, the trial runs out and you just put in your credit card and then it's just uh, um, eight pounds a month from then on. Um, but if you listen to something inventive, um, if you listen to this podcast, then you, if you let us know you've signed up, I'll give you an extra 30 days free on top of that. So that's 60 days. And I, I think that um, a lot of people, if they're, if they're on the ball, I think you'll be able to run through a lot of the programme within 60 days. So you effectively can have it for free. Um, if it's not for you, do tell other people about it. It's a, it's a great system. We've had some good feedback. Um, so ticked off. It helps you be the boss of your marketing one task at a time. Go give it a try. So there's the sponsor done with. And I think now we should move on to the questions. Now we've got quite a few here. I know you've added a few in as well. Al. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start with an interesting one, which is, which I had a question, and this was a while ago, This so actually it's slightly changed since the question was asked. But basically, uh, in Google Analytics, if you go and look at, um, oh, I'm, I'm going to try and remember what the report is now. Um, I'll, I might have a look while you're talking. But basically, there's a report which shows you which keywords people use to come into your, um, your website, you know, basically how they found you on Google um, Bing or other search engines. Um, well, in there, um, this was probably started about four years ago. Maybe I'm misremembering it, but it was a little while ago, uh, maybe even longer than that, that this um, word not provided started appearing in the keyword list. And what that was at the time is that Google was starting to uh, encrypt some of its searches between the person searching and their servers using a secure socket layer or SSL certificate. And what that means is basically anything that the um, user who's searching types into Google, no one else can see except them and Google. So it's, it's a good thing um, protecting that. But they were only doing that for people logged in. So um, not many people had a Google account at the time, or at least um, comparatively, not many people had a Google account. So we're still seeing a lot of um, keywords come through. But over time, um, with things like Google+, Plus, uh, the social network that Google has, or at least had... It is is it still has, but it's in in pieces at the moment, isn't it? It's not really doing so well. I think they're disbanding mm. it and taking components elsewhere. Mm. But basically, they were encouraging a lot of people to sign up for a Google account, 
a Google Plus account maybe to access YouTube or to set up various services. And because of that, they actually kept you logged in. So you wouldn't really know about that you were logged into Google unless you made a conscious effort not to be. And so what that started doing is when you were logged into Google, they would enforce this secure connection and then that secure connection wouldn't share the, the keywords you were using for the search. Basically what this means is we started seeing a lot more not provided or basically more people coming through as the keyword is not provided and very few keywords. So it really now is that that report's pretty much useless. I, I don't find it particularly useful at all. So I hope does that that make sense? Because you weren't you, this is not so clear to you. This is not something you do you deal with much. It's not. Yeah, it's not something I um, do with day to day. Um, I certainly knew about the, you know, the SSL thing, um, which is now for all Google searches that you're running under SSL. I hadn't uh, noticed, but yes, you're right. Yeah, uh, but I, yeah, it's not something I yeah, really knew about. So it's interesting. And I think that's quite a big hole in the whole keyword measurements. And, and, yeah. um, so, it was uh, particularly useful to, to determine exactly what keywords people were using to come through to your website. Um, and it's a shame, you know, it's a shame. To... There is something else you can use, though, um, and that is if in a system called Search Console, which is part of Google Webmasters. Now, um, let me just briefly explain that um, Google Analytics, or the way I like to see it, Google Analytics is giving you statistics on your website. So it's how people uh, come into your website and then move through your website, what pages they go to, how long they spend here and there, and so on. Um, so the search console or the Google Webmasters element is everything that Google sees. So it's the amount of um, people searching for particular keywords and then how many people are clicking through to your site. It also shows any errors that are occurring on your site or any problems that it has crawling your site and, and putting it in its database. And the nice thing about uh, search console is once you've got it set up and it's um, not too tricky to set up, if you've already got Google Analytics set up, it's actually quite simple. You can go in, add your site, and verify it using Google Analytics, and uh, mm. that's pretty quick. That's uh, mm. the way I'd recommend them doing it. Uh, you can also do it via Tag Manager if you're using that. Um, and I, if you go into, oh, I've got to open up now, because I can't, I can't remember. <laughs> like a lot of these systems, you, you remember um, almost physically as you're going through them. So I'm logged into Search on, on Webmasters. Yeah, yes. so you, you yeah. basically do Search Console and let's pick up our site. It, it is it is worth getting a Webmaster account um, if you don't already have one for your site. It's a completely Google-owned thing, just like Analytics is. It's free. Um, it can only help um, with your site generally, maintaining it, optimizing it. Mm -hmm. um, and as Ben says, with uh, like... Um, with indexing errors that Google might see lots of missing pages and things that you don't, you would never know about. So um, it, it's, it's a really, really useful um, resource. It is. And actually it's become more useful. It's something I uh, not dismissed, but didn't really make much of um, many, many years ago, but actually it's become quite useful now. It's um, very useful if you're changing domain names, but yes. that's a whole other, yeah. that's a whole other blog uh, question. Uh, so the, the two areas that I think are really useful in Search Console are the search analytics. So once you've set it up, you go into the dashboard and you can go to search analytics. And in there, you can actually see um, by default, you get the last 28 days and all the queries where people have clicked through to your site. Um, you can also tick impressions. So you can see how many times your um, website 
uh, search result was shown on Google, and that's quite interesting, but also what position you are for certain keywords. So you can find out, um, you know, if you're, um, well, that's interesting. We're, we're apparently position number one for web design Hereford. Interesting. Uh, don't really optimize for that anymore. Um, now that is an average position, so you may periodically be position one. Um, and so, sometimes I have found the results, um, it can say you're position four or something, whatever that position is, you, you, you actually do the Google search result and test it and it doesn't come up. But broadly speaking, it is correct. So it actually gives you a lot of information on how many times you're seen on uh, a Google search and then what position you are and then how many people actually click through. And that can help you identify whether that search um, result or the snippet, so it's the bit of text you see, is actually useful, is actually helping people understand what you offer. Um, so that's, that's actually really interesting. So that's what I would use instead of the keywords um, report in Google Analytics. And the other bit that's really useful is um, it's called crawl errors. Again, you can get to it from the dashboard. And this basically tells you when Google comes across missing pages on your website. And actually, there's a lot of people don't use Search Console, and so they're unaware of these missing pages. Um, but it can be very handy. You know, actually, you might have some pages that had some good Google traffic. Maybe you've got a new site and they weren't transferred over. I think we were talking about this before with the redirects. Mm, and this, this yeah. is something that can actually help, uh, help you identify those. So definitely worth looking out for. Right, let's move on. I'm gonna to jump to one of yours actually, Al, that you put in. Um, I, I'm particularly keen on the what image format for, a, uh, for which job. Uh, okay. So do you wanna yeah. talk us through that one? Sure, so um, it's, it's, this is really just the question of which, which image format um, should you use for different situations on your website? Um, so I'll just briefly give a quick overview for the, for the different image formats for the, those who perhaps aren't, well, don't do this every day. Um, so really, I guess there's kind of three main image formats. There is a fourth, which I'll mention briefly. Um, so this is like the last, like when you have like .jpg or .gif, it's like the last three letters of your of your file name, which is, you know, it's the file format. Um, so originally there were, there were GIFs and JPEGs, uh, but more recently, well, even that's quite a long time ago. Well, I mean, you had um, others. There were TIFFs, BMPs. Oh, BMPs. Oh, that's a long time ago. Yes. <laughs> they, I don't think I'd be any site they, with a BMP. They, yeah, you, you don't really use them on the web. But they, they are other file formats that you might see. Yeah. And actually, and, but sure. actually, it's, yeah. it's important to know about those because you do occasionally still see TIFFs because scanners might output a TIFF. So if you're but scanning you an image, online. no, but some, you, some people might be supply, supplying TIFFs and, and trying to put them on. And they, they're... they're Pretty, they're pretty big and they're pretty awkward. Yeah. Okay, so quickly on a TIFF file. So that is um, something you might produce from Photoshop or another image editing program. It's, yeah, it's basically an image of something. So you wouldn't, you can sometimes get logos in TIFFs. I won't go into all the different uh, situations. But um, yeah, a TIFF file is generally large, not suitable for websites, but it's usually a good starting point to make something that you can put onto a website with. If you're asking for high-res images from your photographer or some other uh, creative, um, yeah, TIFF file will be fine, a good starting point. It's generally high quality. So, so from that, um, you, uh, you may have, if you've got an image, uh, literally a photograph of something, then the, the best format to use is a JPEG, so .jpg, sometimes .jpeg, which annoys me a little bit. I prefer the shortened .jpg. You prefer the shortened. Yeah. It's a personal um, so essentially that is what's called like a rasterized file. So if you were to zoom into that, 
uh, you would see that it becomes sort of blurry and if you zoomed in enough you'd see it's really just made up of squares so it's essentially a mosaic that's really all it is um, it's a mosaic that's just really really tightly packed together with tiny tiny squares which is the resolution so you might have three uh, on screen generally it's 72 uh, pixels per inch so there'd be 72 of those in an inch uh, for print it's like 300 or more um, so JPEGs are a good way of um, squashing down the file size of, of images and essentially online that's what you're really interested in is quality versus file size mm. if if we all had blisteringly fast internet uh, wherever we were um, yeah we the format <laughs> we just use the best format and the best mm. compression available um, but these days you've just got to try and make it as small as possible whilst maintaining its quality JPEG does a great job of that it has a, when you save it you have a variable uh, kind of compression level so you can apply to it and, and what do you think would it, be the best range? Well, it, it goes to, well, it's, it's 100%, isn't it, basically? Well, 100% is the best. That produces a very large file because it mm. hasn't compressed it. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't use that. Different uh, programs have different, I find, different uh, levels of compression. So, for example, Fireworks, something I use, I generally put it on um, 80 mm. uh, out of compression. Uh, on Photoshop, I generally do 60, and that's enough. Uh, I don't know. I've always just—that's always what that's I've worked with. Interesting, isn't it? Yes, I know. Maybe that's complete fallacy, but <laughs> um, it seems to it seems to work for me. I think a broad um, broad safe bet is ninety, which means you're ooh, getting no, that's too high. I that's know one. I know, but it's a safe bet because you're uh, for, for me. <laughs> okay. Oh, for for me. Um, no, this is not. This is where you're really you you. you sometimes, if you have a logo or a lot of detail in something, and you compress it. Um, and you don't have it, you don't have that high enough, then you can get some artifacting around it. And if you've got people who are, um, let's say a co company where the brand is important, mm -hmm. then, I mean, maybe this is where coming back to PNG, you're going well, to say Well, this is where yeah, you should okay. use your correct file type. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I've been, I've been told. So what, what would you, what would you say is best between something between 60 and 80 then? Okay. Um, I wouldn't go above 80 for web graphics, okay. personally. I, on Photoshop, I generally do 60 and that's okay. Um, and out of Photoshop, um, you, I would use the Save for Web option, which just gives you all these mm -hmm. um, controls a bit more easily than if you're just doing a Save As. It's just a bit further down on the menu. Um, but yes, definitely worth using that. You get a preview of what it looks like. Um, so yeah, I mean, unless you've only got a few images and you can spend the time doing it, checking each one, uh, you probably need to do like a batch action. You're going to do them all the same. They might have hundreds, you know, photo galleries. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I do. Yeah, between sixty and eighty. There's um, a, a good tool we use, which is good for batch, called Image Optim. It's a free. Yeah. It's a free program. It's a, a tiny little bit buggy. Not that it, buggy, as in sometimes it's trying to do a lot of images and just will crash. It doesn't do a bad job of the images. It'll just fall over. But actually, it's sometimes pretty good it well, because you know, it, it does two. Point. It does two things with JPEGs, which I think is why JPEGs are important. Um, once you, once they're ready to go live, it, it will do a batch compression. So you can say, I want them all to be 80%. But it'll also remove any unnecessary data. So it keeps all the picture data, but but like images have lots of other um, data in like what photo the camera they were taken on and dates and location, lo lots of stuff, basically. It mm. gets rid of all of that, and that mm. can shrink it down a little bit too. Mm, it all helps. Yeah. It all helps. Um, I won't talk too much about resolution at this point, as in like the, the physical pixel dimensions of an image. 
but if you are using it at a certain size, I just make that bigger. I make it bigger than what you think you need for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, on Retina devices, if you have a slightly larger uh, quality image and it gets shrunk down mm. and CSS, you can make it always be 100% wide of the screen. It will just pack all those tiny pixel, uh, yeah, the pixels um, tight together that are in the image, so it'll be better quality. Uh, and also in future, and again, we were just talking about this, using slightly larger images for big screens. You may just want, in future, you might just want to use it larger, so it's just always a good idea. Always keep the original, that's rule number one. But I, I tend to make images just bigger than I, I need them. Mm. And just employing better com, um, compression on those. But each to their own, people probably have different ways of doing that. Um, and the PNGs? So, yeah, they, those, so JPEGs are really good for images because they do, you don't get something for nothing. So with the compression, if you look at it really closely, you might find things are a little bit blurry. So if you had a logo, not really suitable for a logo. Let's say you had a really contrasting logo, something that's black and white, maybe a circle with your logo, like a black circle or something. If you did that as a JPEG, around the edges of the circle, you'd see kind of greys mm. where it was trying to merge it in. It was trying to you know, compress it and work out an average. It just wouldn't look very crisp. So um, you've got a couple of options. You can use either a GIF uh, or a PNG for that. Now, GIFs are limited and they're sort of slightly old school now. One thing GIF has over a PNG is that you can animate it. Nothing like a, you know, you can't make a film out of it. <laughs> I'm sure people have. You um, can make a cat dance though. Well, you can do, <laughs> there's lots of sites um, yeah, online. Which I'll is put the, one like, in the notes. Yeah. Yeah, Giphy, I think, is one. You might, you'll see them on Facebook and things, these little GIFs. Yeah, they're very popular. Like, yeah, okay. they are popular. And that's, um, they never used to be used for that kind of thing. They were much, yeah, it was usually used for some tacky animation on well, logo. The one I remember was the, uh, like, have you got mail type animation? Not on AOL, but it basically was a little American-style mailbox where, um, uh, I think you would put this on your website next to where your email was, and it would have a little raising and lowering flag that, that was a GIF. <laughs> yes. And they kind of went out of favour, didn't they? But they've really come back in now. And you've got yes. lots of applications that will convert like a small snippet of video into a GIF yeah. sequence. It's crazy. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and what with broadband, uh, you know, being faster, I think, um, I don't really know the average size of one of those things. But, um, yeah, it's just all helped to, to people use them more, I think, more recreationally. <laughs> recreational GIFs. Than, than okay. There's the title. Recreational GIFs. Yeah. Um, um, Okay, and you've got some others so, here. What's um, the scalable? Yeah, so PN... Let me just uh, say about PNGs. So um, uh, PNGs don't support animation, but that's not that's not so bad. You can do lots of animation in CSS and JavaScript anyway. Um, but what PNG has over a GIF is that it's it's just better quality. There's more colors. GIF is only limited to 256 colors. Ping is limited to millions of colors. Um, and you can you can also um, uh, put some like a photo and what we call like line art together in a PNG, and you still get a really good quality low file size. Now, is that I know that you can do that in fireworks, but can, is that is that actually something that will render on a website? I've not thought about it in that way, but I know in, in fireworks, which is is a deprecated program now from Adobe, but we we both really like it. I mean, I've moved on a little bit to Pixelmator, but. I think you'd still do a lot of stuff in it, and it works really well. I'm, really... I'm refusing to admit <laughs> it's a really nice package, actually. Although it looks bad on a Retina screen, but you haven't got one yet. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, you can basically have bitmaps in there, all these mosaics, you know, so actual 
pixel for pixels. Uh, but you can also then have your vector drawings. You can have the, uh, basically uh, lines and points. And, yeah. and you can save those together in a PNG. But does that actually, that actually will save all that data together so you could represent on, that online? You just have it on a... You could have that as a yeah. PNG. You may have a logo that incorporates part of an image. Wow. Um, does so that scale need, as well? If you were to stretch you need that, Chris, not really. Ah, so Again, it make it slightly larger and then that... That okay. is a bit scaling, but sorry, diving uh, into some nuanced detail here, but I'm fascinated. Um, again, you're going to be compromising slightly on, on file size. If you did have an image, uh, uh, let's say a logo with an image that's part of that logo, um, and your logo was Word, so those need to be nice and crisp, and you've got an image, then yes, PNG really is the only thing you can do if they're all sort of merged together. File size won't be brilliant, but then you're not going to be needing it at a massive size, so it's fine. And again, it's all about trade offs, and it's all about Usage, where you're going to use it. There's no, there is no hard and fast rule of use this in this situation. Sometimes you can compare, and then Fireworks lets you do this, and I'm sure other, other image editing programs are available. Um, you can compare what something will, the file size will be if you were to export it as a, a GIF maybe, or a PNG, or a JPEG. You might find between a JPEG and a PNG, there's very little difference. Yeah. You might find there's a huge difference in file size. Um, and so, you, and you can see what the quality would be like. So it's yeah, it's horses for horses, and there is no hard and fast rule, rule really. And you've got one, one final one here, um, SVG. Yes, so we were talking a bit about rasterized files for like images and like vector or line art, you know, artwork, um, PNGs, something if you're familiar with um, software packages. So a raster file will be something you make out of Photoshop, um, a vector file will be something you make out of Illustrator. Um, um, and from, from Illustrator, you're probably more likely to save it to PNG, and from Photoshop, you're more likely to save it to JPEG. Um, so, and what SVG is, it's really just an online version of an Illustrator file. So the, the, the benefit of, of having a vector file is that it's kind of infinitely scalable. It's really, all a, a file like that is, a vector file, it's just... Um, uh, it's kind of like a coordinate map of, of certain points, colors, gradients, shapes. And so it's mathematical. So as you increase it, it can just, it can, you can increase it to the size of the moon and it would still hold its quality because all it is is a series of points that are joined up with lines <laughs> in this form. Um, so SVG is called Scalable Vector Graphics. Um, you can use that on all modern browsers. Um, so it's literally got a you know, image.svg, and it's really good for maybe a logo that is quite simple or some, maybe you've got some words in your logo, and you need to be able to grow or shrink that and keep it perfect quality, and SVG would, would, would do that perfectly. Yeah, I'm, I've often seen it for logos to make sure they're pin yeah. sharp because they, they do retain that, you know, as long as they're built well in, in the beginning, they'll look great. Oh, mm. that's very helpful so basically yeah. um jpegs are for photos and we we should mm -hmm. use about 80 80 mm -hmm. compression not 90 ignore ben he's uh he's no good at that that's always printing it yes um gifs yeah. we don't tend to use unless you need it for an animation i think sometimes you can they're actually smaller but broadly speaking it's it's more confusion and so mm. i just use them for animation if you need to um, and you might be just taking that animation from a, like a royalty-free place. Um, PNGs are good for sort of high quality, and also if you want transparency. I, I know well, that is something I, I don't. I don't think you said, but GIFs can do transparency, but they 
again yes. there's so many things that they yeah. don't do well that actually yeah. that's how we used to get transparency many many years ago before PNG yes. I think yeah now I but, haven't mentioned transparency and that no, is quite important PNG um, yeah PNG is allowing you to have this yeah PNG is much better with transparency than, than GIFs um, but not just transparency you can have um, you know opaqueness and different areas of opaqueness in the same graphic that's right and so that's, so, that's, so that's like having you could have uh, an image with a, a shadow a drop shadow behind it that, and you can have the drop yeah. shadow like 50 percent opacity bleeding off to um 100 percent opacity and so you you can drop that over anything on a web page and it'll look like yeah. it's a proper drop shadow. Yeah. yeah you could have maybe every page of your site had a different background color you could use that same logo with the sort of opaque drop shadow as a png format it'll just Look seamless on it. Any any background you drop it onto, it look fine. If you had that as a JPEG, you're always going to get a little bit of like white outline on your drop shadow. It's just not good. You can't have a page. Don't get me wrong. You can't have a JPEG at all. Yeah, and you'd often have to do it to the background color, wouldn't you? You'd have to wear the background color is you'd have to match. And the number of times I've been sent a logo that's in there's a JPEG format that has some kind of you know mock transparency <laughs> so like say a drop shadow to a background color it just looks terrible and it, it just destroys yeah it destroys the look and feel of what you're trying to make so and and then svgs what uh, they're just basically vector graphics so they're basically points with lines in between and they're output yeah. from professional like you'd use those for logos if, if uh, logos, maybe a graph something you can do maybe something you want someone to zoom into um you know online a graph would be a really good example of an svg yeah um, right, we're running out of time, so let's. Which what would we've got next? Uh, I think my website has been hacked. I think that's a good one. I think we should leave that for next time because we want to spend some time on that. I guess that's a big one, and I yeah, it's a, big it's a juicy one, topic. Yeah. So we'll do that next time. Um, it's actually a quick one, um, which we could do about the re monthly reports and Google Analytics. I skipped past this, but actually, it goes very neatly with the um, uh, the first question, which was about the keyword not provided in Google Analytics. Um, Google Analytics is a really good free tool for getting statistics on your website. Uh, if you haven't got it installed, you should definitely get it installed. Um, and uh, I may have mentioned this before, but I mean, TikTok has some instructions on how to do this and will point you in the right way. So if you haven't signed up for it, go and sign up. But one of the quite useful things is, you know, if you don't use stats all the time, you can forget that it's there monitoring your site. And what I like to do for clients is get them to set up a schedule uh, or schedule a, a monthly email report that comes through. Now, uh, again, TikTok goes through this this process and, and shows you how to do that. And they've, there's actually a link to um, an example dashboard report. But if you go into Google Analytics, once you've signed up, and I'm going to find it now, if you go into Analytics, and um, I'd say the, the simplest report without setting up your own custom one is to go to Acquisition. I'm just going to find a site we will pick. So we'll pick our site and you want to go down to acquisition on the left, which has the two arrows. And then I go to all traffic, drop that down and go to channels. And this is quite a nice, simple report that gives you all the different ways people can visit your site. So from organic, referral, social, um, how many people are coming in, how they're bouncing out, how long they're spending, that sort of thing. And if you've got goals set up, it shows you on there too. But if you go to the top of this and go to email, you can put in someone's email address. So I'm just going to put in um, Al at your email. And um, if you set the attachment to a PDF, it'll actually send through a PDF that looks pretty much like the report you're seeing. It's, it's not far off it actually. Um, frequency monthly. 
and we're going to send that on the first of the month. Now, oddly, you have to put, um, there's a big white box beneath all of the, these, these few fields, and you have to put in some text, which will actually go through to the body of the email. So I'm going to put, hi, Al, here is your report. So I pop that in, send it, and basically that will then schedule the email, that report to be sent out on the first of every month, and it will sort of go through to Al um, and remind him that he needs to have a quick look and see where all the traffic's coming from. There are better reports and you can go in and um, make your own dashboard and basically uh, put all the numbers on there that you want each month. But this is a good one to start with. Certainly worth doing. I think that's the end of it. Mm. I think that's the end. I think that's all we've got time for. But everything on the internet. There's <laughs> nothing left. There's, there's, always, there's always more on the internet. More cats. <laughs> <was something. laughs> um, good to speak to you, Al. Good to catch up. Um, I'll try and get this up next week in time for our newsletter to go out. And um, yeah, look forward to next month. Don't know when it is, but uh, we'll we'll let everyone know, and uh, I'll put out a tweet asking for questions from the internet as well at some point before that. But good speaking to you, Al. Thanks very much. Okay, and you.